This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 5th, the Hardest Age Edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, 8, Sam, 5, and Wally, 3. And I'm Gabriel Roth, a senior editor at Slate, the editorial director of Slate Plus, and most importantly, the father of Eliza, 6, and Leo, 2.5. Hi, Gabe. Happy New Year. Hey, thanks. Same to you. So, guys, Dan, as you know, is no longer a host of the show, and you're probably wondering what the heck we're going to do now. What I can tell you is that we're in the process of figuring it out. Uh, We'll have news soon, and I hope you'll hang with us until then and beyond, after then, forever. Uh, But for right now, I'm going to be hosting with uh, friends. So, on to today's show. We'll talk to the author of a new study about how parenting tweens is actually the hardest parenting phase of all. And then Slate editor Sam Adams will join us to talk about Rogue One. Specifically, should I let my five-year-old see it? Also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a listener call about a foster child and homophobia. But first, announcements. I'm going to be talking to you about Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members of Slate Plus get more of this and their other favorite Slate podcasts. For instance, this week we'll be talking to Michelle Goldberg, uh, Slate writer extraordinaire, about a remarkable family holiday that she just returned from. Um, These Slate Plus segments are often an opportunity to go behind the scenes, find out more about the uh, triumphs and fails of uh, the Slate editors and writers uh, who are also parents. Um, Slate Plus members also get... uh, uh, extra segments for the Political Gab Fest, the Culture Gab Fest, the Gist, uh, a lot of our other great podcasts, and in addition to that, exclusive stories, uh, members-only projects like our great Slate Academy series, uh, and much, much more. Join Slate Plus today. You can do that for for a limited time only, just thirty five dollars a year. If you are a podcast fan, it's well worth it. Um, you can sign up today at slate dot com slash plus. Also. There are several reasons to go to our Facebook page and like our Facebook page. Number one, do you think we have too many announcements? Come to our Facebook page and tell us. Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Are you missing Dan right now? That's okay. That's normal. We're going to stop talking about Dan. But 
uh, no, we're not going to stop talking about Dan. He just left. We're not going to we're not going to um, stop missing him yet. But if you go to our Facebook page and you like it, you will also see an adorable photo of Dan and his family heading off to New Zealand. And as an added bonus, you will get to see a listener berate me for my vocal fry and personality and me fight back. It's all very exciting. It's happening at Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Please like our page like me, like my voice. Okay, let's move on to triumphs and fails. Gabe, you go first. Well, so I have a, a, a local fail as part of a larger global triumph. The global triumph is that we successfully brought the two kids home from Dublin, Ireland three days ago um, in, in a scheme that involved flying from Ireland to Heathrow in London and then hanging out in Heathrow for four hours and basically waking them up at four in the morning, dragging them through this complicated system of baggage claims and airports and passport controls and then schlepping them onto two different airplanes and keeping them entertained on the airplanes and then getting them in a cab and getting them home. And like everyone is fine. Like we're not, we haven't slept very much, but like everyone is fine and it could have been a lot worse and like that. So in some sense, that's a triumph. And the anxiety leading up to that is worse than the actual event. Yeah, I think that's right. I think for much of this very nice family vacation in England and Ireland, um, I was thinking about that (laughs) 17-hour journey, um, (laughs) which is not the best way to spend your vacation. Right. But, of course, within that um, epic transatlantic triumph, um, there are all sorts of uh, microcosmic fails. Um, But the one that I will remember for a long time is when on, like, hour 15 and a half, we're standing in the, like, passport control line at JFK, which is never anybody's best moment. And Leo, two and a half, is, like... He's at an age where he just he doesn't want to stand still. He wants to like explore all the corners of this exciting room full right. of people and the lines and the stuff and and that's not okay in passport control. Like there's this very strong feeling of like official authority is here and like actually who gets to come into the country is a super scary bureaucratic process and like I'm anxious about it and also we're all exhausted and especially him. So we're trying to get him to stand still and his older sister, Eliza, likes to do this thing with him where she like gets him riled up Mm. and she does it by being friendly to him in a way that makes him be more trouble, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a sort of complicated rebound maneuver against us. Like, oh, you wanted to have this little baby. You wanted this younger brother. Well, look how cute he is. And I'm just, (laughs) oh, look at his chubby little cheeks. Oh, I'm going to poke him and tickle him and like just get him super agitated. And like, I'm just trying to keep this kid under control and she's just screwing it up. Um, and after, you know, I'd been telling her not to do this like for 15 and a half hours. And finally, at this particular moment, I sort of snapped and was more forceful with her than I would want to be because the thing is, she's exhausted too. Like, Wait, meaning you yelled? I yelled and like grabbed her arm, not in a like violent way, yeah. but in a way that like she felt it and she didn't like it. And I, like, what I had not taken into account was, like, yeah, Leo is acting out and running around because he's exhausted, and I'm strung out because I'm exhausted, but she's riling him up because she's exhausted, and we're all at our worst right now, and, like, you're the grown-up, and your job is to understand all of the people and not just some of the people. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I would have lost my temper in that moment, too, and you're human. You're not just the grown-up, but sure. I'll accept it as a fail, but a very, like, you know, I'm not sure how else that situation could have gone. 
I mean, it, it, yeah, if like looking back on the 15 hour journey, like if there was one moment of snapping, like, I guess I'm not surprised, but like next time let's try not to do that. Are you a yeller in general? I'm going to guess no. I, I'm not. And it's not yelling in terms of volume, but like I can go stern in a way that I think is frightening. To yeah. Her. Yeah. My mother-in-law remarked on winter break that uh, John and I were yelling a lot less than we used to. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like a sort of, <laughs> oh, <that's, laughs> we are yellers. Uh, that, would, that's some beautiful mother-in-law. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'm glad you guys made it home safely. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. You had much. a good trip. Yeah, it was lovely. Good. Okay. So I have a triumph this week, which is rooted in a fail. I feel like we're both sort of saying similar things. Within all. our triumphs <laughs> are yes. fails. Uh, but I rectified the fail, so now it's a triumph. So for many years, I belonged to the Y in Brooklyn. That was where I worked out, and they have a childcare room where you can drop your kids off and go work out for an hour. And I never used the childcare room because I always felt that Harry would not enjoy it, and he was a little bit of an anxious kid, and I'm a lot bit of an anxious adult, and it made me anxious thinking about him being anxious, and so I just never did it. And everyone I know drop their kids at that childcare room or some other fitness center childcare room or would go on vacations. And, you know, there are those family trips where, like, for a couple hours every day, your kids go off with the counselor and other kids and you have some adult time and then you all meet up. I could never even imagine doing those, not because I think that the care isn't great and not because I want to spend every minute with my child or my children, but just, I don't know, I just felt like Harry wouldn't be wouldn't be okay with that. And so I wasn't going to do it. Uh, and therefore, I haven't done it for my other kids either. So for Hanukkah, John got me a great present, which was a family membership to this big Jersey gym. If you don't know, gyms in Jersey are like malls, but for exercise, like they're not at all like the urban experience I've had at a gym. You're looking at me like you've never been. Have you ever never been in a gym? I've been in like one gym one time. <laughs> well, the urban gym experience is that like the treadmills are always full and you have to just like stand behind people and stalk them until they feel so uncomfortable that they hop off. And... That was what it was like. There was definitely like a high density of exercise within the gym. Right. Nothing. I mean, this place has so many empty treadmills. I'm getting off point here. But anyway, family membership to the gym. The reason John got the family membership, I suspect, is because there's a childcare room there and he likes the idea. He doesn't exercise and doesn't believe in gyms, um, but likes the idea of me going, bringing the kids so that then, you know, he has some time to himself, which is perfectly acceptable. And if I had normal children or if I was a normal parent, that would be great. I'd drop them in the childcare center and I'd work out. And then there's actually at this mall, there's an indoor pool so then I could pick them up and we could go swim. But I felt very, very nervous about doing this and couldn't imagine doing it. Uh, but so the triumph is just that I did it, that I dropped my kids at this childcare center. Let me ask you a question. What was yeah. your picture of like the bad childcare experience that Harry was going to dislike? Just that he would be upset and not that he would like be screaming, but just that he would not have a good time. It was literally just that he would not have a good time. And he did not have a good time. I actually took Sam alone the first time and he was fine. Great. Had a great time. Then we swam. Then the second time I asked Harry if he wanted to come, he said yes. And he went in okay. And then when I picked him up, he said, that was so much longer than an hour. And I said, no, it wasn't. And he said, that wasn't fun. And he said that he felt nervous that I wasn't going to come back. Uh, which seemed crazy to me. He's eight. Like, I'm, of course I'm going to come back. But he, but I also felt bad. Uh, but not bad enough to think, like, this was a horrible thing that I did. I thought, like, this is a completely normal thing that people do, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to continue doing it. And we ultimately had a nice day because we swam and had a snack. 
So I think the triumph is that I, what, overcome my own anxiety or like just kind of didn't care that he would be unhappy for an hour, which is fine. Yeah, he, he, he apparently there's something about being left in an unfamiliar and slightly bureaucratic situation that he doesn't enjoy and that you knew he wouldn't enjoy. Right. Like there's something you understand about him that right. like that's not going to be fun for him. Um, and that's great. That's like insightful and empathic of you towards him. But then also like it's fine for him to be in that situation for an, for hour, an hour and not enjoy right. it. Right. That's like, I think what I finally yeah. am trying to come to. And that's where that's where John has been for a long, long time. So yeah. Okay. Cool. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What age is the hardest age? My youngest child is two and a half, and my wife and I talk about how it's easier now than it was when he was a baby, and, and we can't wait until he's four, and he crosses that threshold, and he doesn't need so much supervision, and so we, we are thinking that we're through the worst of it. But a new study out of Arizona State University suggests that the hardest age might, in fact, be ahead of us, that it's the middle school years. Our guest, Sunia Luther, Foundation Professor of Psychology at Arizona State, and her co-author, Lucia Cicciola, asked more than 2,000 mothers about their experience as parents, and what they found was that mothers had the hardest time when their children were in middle school, and that the mothers of infants and of grown children were the happiest and the least anxious. Professor Luther, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. When you began this study, what did you expect to find, and, and how did the results match your expectations? Well, we had uh, a little bit of an inkling that things would be bad uh, around the adolescent years, and certainly the transition to new motherhood. Uh, given the literature that existed at the time, those were the major stages, you know, high school transition to new motherhood and the so-called empty nest uh, syndrome. Uh, I must confess that I was surprised to see how conclusively, how unequivocally the problems were by far the most accentuated in the middle school years. So essentially, uh, pre-adolescence is the new adolescence and middle school is the new high school. And what is it about those adolescent years that makes them so difficult for mothers? Goodness, it's uh, sort of like so many things converging into a perfect storm. Uh, if you think about it from the perspective of the kids, they're transitioning from small classrooms with one teacher uh, for the whole day to these huge schools with a different teacher for each uh, class. They are now, things are much more competitive and openly so. They're tracked into the advanced reading group or math group as opposed to the mid-level or the um, sort of kids who are doing more poorly. So every, competition is that much more public. Hormones are raging. Uh, moods are swinging. Uh, peers become so important and this issue of am I popular, am I not, am I left out, am I not, assumes uh, huge proportions in the minds of these kids. What happens then is as the children themselves are in this uh, period of so much and so such profound change, it brings obviously a great deal of confusion. And then we as mothers 
trying to help them through this, it's almost like this is a, a whole new game, a whole new set of challenges with which we have absolutely no familiarity. This is not about sleepless nights and changing diapers and doing timeouts and, uh, and so on. Did you notice in your study if there was any difference between mothers of uh, sons versus mothers of daughters at, at that age? We actually did test for that uh, to see if there were differences between moms of sons and daughters. And surprisingly, there were not. Essentially, uh, a confused and upset and stressed out uh, preteen is, uh, is the same, whether it's a, it's a boy or a girl, in terms of effects on mothers. And, and what is the experience like for mothers at, during that time? Um, what does it feel like to be the mother of a, an adolescent? Uh, as I said, being the, mother, being the mother of a middle schooler, that transition again into puberty and into middle school, I think is bewildering, frightening and confusing, perplexing for, for mothers. By this time, you know, by elementary school, most of us had worked out, all right, this is what works with my this child with this temperament, and this is what works with my that child with that temperament, whether it's, uh, you know, negotiating things or setting limits or how you display affection, hugs, and so on and so on. Now, with this transition to puberty in middle school, the old, the old rules or the old ways of doing things simply don't work. You cannot put that child in your lap and say, I love you, sweetheart, everything's going to be fine. You could try, but <laughs> I don't think you're going to get very far. And the same with sitting and sit down, you need to finish your dinner or you need to put away your phone. Uh, it, now you start getting the eye rolling and the looks that are actually carry a great deal of not just uh, scorn, but even dislike. Everything changes. A am I right that you have been the mother of a middle schooler yourself? I had been the mother of two middle schoolers. My son is now 26 and my daughter's 22. And and what was that time like for you? It was, uh, as I said, started out saying it was frightening, it was confusing, it was perplexing. Uh, and I am a clinical and developmental psychologist who has studied adolescence uh, since I got my PhD uh, decades ago. So for me to have been quite as confused as I was. I can only imagine what other other moms go through. It was confusing. Even just something as simple as that first day of, you know, when they bring you into middle school, they take you around the buildings. That's a bit of a culture shock for the kids and, and for us, that you have to race from one end of the building to the other and meet all these different teachers. And they're saying, all right, you're tracked in this group. And I still remember that was the time they started planning out with my son, who's the older, I remember this, okay, we're going to put you in this math group and this reading group, and this is the trajectory we're planning for you in high school, and this is what we're anticipating as your path to college. And I'm saying that this kid is what barely got a mustache and his voice is barely cracked, and we're talking about these future life plans. So there's a combination of all that happens, all those biological and social and, and cognitive changes that are happening, but also in the context of, um, you know, schools uh, in upper middle class settings where ambitions are high. And that, again, is the time when parents first really come face to face with this very bluntly. All right. This is the kind of expectations we have for your child uh, academically and in terms of extracurricular. It's going to be jazz band A or jazz band B. It's going to be, you know, field hockey, the, the, mo the most difficult sport to get into. All this all comes at one 
at one time as well with the onset into middle school, with the on, with the entrance into middle school. And what should I be doing as my children get a little older and head towards middle school? Besides just being aware that this will be a difficult time with a lot of transitions and challenges, what can I do to make that easier for myself and for my wife? Uh, you can make it easier by, as you said, first thinking about and understanding that these are not trivial th- changes that are happening to your child and therefore to your family. And the second most important thing is make sure that you have a support system, a go-to committee that will give you support as you figure out where you're going to draw the line and how you're going to enforce the limits and so on and so forth. One of the other very trying things that happens at this stage is the testing of limits. This is when kids start to talk about uh, and experiment with drugs and alcohol and sex and so on and staying out late. And so this is yet another challenge for us as parents. Where do you draw the line? Is it okay for them to hang out uh, uh, downtown without an adult? How late? But back to back to your question, getting support in this role as saying, all right, should I be drawing the line here? Am I being too harsh or am I being too lenient? Through that, then when your child does look at you with that disdain and slams a door and so on, and it hurts when they pull away, having again that person say, uh, to be loving to you and saying, I know this is a very hard job and I'm in your corner and I'm supporting you. I'm with you through this. Drawing those lines or figuring out how to draw them does seem like the hardest part because when you do have younger kids, it's much clearer. Like your kid hits and there's a punishment for that, or the, you know, that's it's clearly that's not okay. But a lot of these decisions you have to make for your middle school age kids are gray areas. It's like I think of it as like you're walking a tightrope for a period of six or eight years because uh, every little decision is one that you could argue theoretically. Uh, make the decision this way or that. Uh, simple thing like how late you stay up or when at what age do you give a cell phone or should you have a television in the room? Or yeah, I guess could keep going on and on and on every day you're faced with another decision. And these all seem like issues that connect to the stuff you were talking about to do with popularity and fitting in and being part of an in-group, right? That like if I don't let my daughter have a cell phone and all of her friends have cell phones, then they can't text her and then she's not part of the group. If I don't let her go to the party or hang out past 10 o'clock, then she misses out on the fun activity where the friendships are being formed. So it it seems like all the complicated stuff gets very mixed up together. Some of the most uh, difficult or delicate or... uh, complicated decisions do have to do with the peer group is as i said how late you hang out what 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 kind of uh what kind of do you have your facebook page what's am i allowed to see it am i not allowed to see it so there's a great deal of stuff that's happening around i want to be i want to fit in with the group and unfortunately some of that fitting in with the peer group involves experimenting with uh things like you know, breaking rules, testing the limits, checking out drugs and alcohol, and so on. And that's where it gets really very, very confusing for parents because, you know, if you're very draconian and you draw the line, an absolute line in the sand that is absolutely no way, they that can backfire as well. So there you're in this horrendous situation saying, all right, so do I let my child have this sip of champagne at, at New Year's, even though he's 12 or 13? Or do I say absolutely no alcohol of any kind? 
knowing full well that each of those, whichever side you come down, there's a potential potential downside. So Gabe and I are now sufficiently afraid uh, of our future. <laughs> Leave us with um, a common theme, if there was one that emerged, that you heard from parents of high school kids that will make us feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> and our listeners feel. Yes. Uh, the point is not to be afraid. The point is to be aware that these are uh, decisions that are complicated. So I'm also, in some ways, I'm trying to be reassuring to parents when they find themselves confused, saying, you're not the only ones that are confused. This happens to all of us. It happened to all of us. The two really important things I'm going back to is, well, one I said earlier, make sure you have your support system who are uh, people who are going to be gentle with you and supportive of you and talk you through the pros and cons of a decision tree. Where do you make your decisions? And the second is most important thing is have an open and honest uh, communication. Your relationship should be characterized by, should always be open and honest with your children saying, bottom line is I have my rules. We can talk about them. Here are the consequences that we will agree on. But whatever happens, I need you to know that I'm in your corner, I love you, and I need you to come to me if there is a problem. That was very helpful. No, I, no you're not scared, are you both of no, you? No, <laughs> we're hamming it up for the audience. <laughs> no, we're scared. I'm but, a little scared. <laughs> yeah. You didn't even mention the perimetopause part of things, which... <laughs> I know. There's so much more. It's perimenopause. It's also, you know, career demands are so much higher. That's like, see, for when my kids were 12, you'll find this. That's when you're senior enough that people want a lot out of you. And you're not quite like an old fogey that you can say, I don't care about this anymore. So career demands are more. Perimenopause is there. The quality of your relationship, marriage changes because it's no longer new and whatnot, you know. Uh, we haven't talked about kids' activities and the pressures those put on parents because that's when they start all these goddamn on me. Uh, you know, <laughs> they, go on. There's not, not a second that is free. So just as your your body is getting older, you don't have the energy as much. There's all these new professional demands on us, and marriages are not quite as strong and you're racing around like a freaking chicken with your head cut off with trying to coordinate 10,000 activities for this small family it is uh, uh, i don't again i'm I, I shouldn't be frightening you but it is challenging you know better prepared than not absolutely it's better to know that, uh, thank you for your wisdom and um thank you for all of this advice i we are frightened but um i think also now hopefully better prepared don't be frightened. You know, as you see from well, everybody who's responded to the story, including myself, they do come. We do come out the other end. It's a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> we do live to tell the tale. So don't be frightened. Just hang tough together and be loving to each other and to your kids, and and that'll make the whole thing a great deal easier. That sounds like good advice. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Luther. My pleasure. It's funny because I have been, you know. I think most people we had a slight conversation about this this study and most people felt that they the hardest stage is the stage that you're in. Um, and I have always felt like this younger stage is, is hard and the hardest. And when the kids get older, there will be so many challenges with that. But at least they'll be separating. And I've like looked forward to the separation. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like when, when you're handed a newborn and the newborn is like a bundle of needs, and then one of the first things that you find is that it, it gets progressively less needy over time. Like, wow, my kid can now hold up his head by himself. What a genius. And now my job of constantly holding up this baby's head is no longer needed. Right. And that's a great relief. And so you have this sense of things getting easier and easier. And I wasn't really prepared for the idea that it might take a turn in the other direction. And also just like, I think, I don't know, don't you sometimes feel like you like I want my kids to sort of not need me as much and I mean I guess they they will what we're lear- what we learned from this and what I guess I we already probably knew deep down inside is that they will need us but like I look forward to like not I look I feel like okay if they're gonna roll their eyes and shut their door and not want to hang out with me great I can like read a book but it's not really that easy yeah <laughs> and I mean maybe what it is is that they do still need you but they now express that need through hostility which doesn't seem fun right Right. I have that enough in my marriage. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on. Each week we take a question from one of you and try to answer it. If you've got one, call us and leave us a message at 424-255-7833. Today we have a call from Jade. Hi, Dan and Allison. My name is Jade. I am a foster mom to a five-year-old little boy. Uh, He is heading to adoption and he has two older sisters who are going to be adopted by uh, a different family. Um, I do know the other family just because we see each other um, at visits and what have you, and we are trying to form a relationship so that we can keep the biological siblings together. Um, Our plan has been that the older siblings will come here once a month for a sleepover, and I will send my five-year-old there once a month for a sleepover, so twice a month I'll get to have sleepovers with each other. Uh, However, the other foster family is extremely conservative, where we are liberal and very homophobic, and because of what they do for a living, it comes up a lot in their day-to-day conversation, and so I'm wondering if I should have a conversation with them before the first sleepover and request that they not talk about those things in front of my five-year-old or if I should just talk to my five-year-old and kind of explain that, uh, you know, homophobic people exist because we do have uh, gay family members and friends, and I think that it would be a really hard thing for him to hear such negative views about homosexuality. I love your show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, Jade. Thanks for the call. Um, I just want to clarify my understanding of the situation because uh, uh, we we weren't quite sure about this, but but the situation as I think you described it is that this five-year-old boy, you are now his foster mom and you are moving towards adopting him so that you'll be his mother. And he has these two older sisters who, who you are not fostering, but who are about to be adopted by this other family who have these homophobic views. Um, I think that's right. First of all, He's very lucky to have you to have found a permanent family, and and his siblings are also lucky to have found a permanent family, even if it's a family that maybe there are some ways in which we wish they had a different kind of family. Um, And they're all lucky that they have you wanting to try to maintain a connection between them. Um, I think that that's a wonderful thing to do and and a very worthwhile thing to do for your son and and for his siblings. Um, 
And in order to do that, um, it seems like there are going to have to be some compromises that you're going to have to make. It seems like there are aspects of the situation that are not ideal, um, and you're going to have to reckon with those one way or another. Um, the idea of talking to the other family uh, and asking them, well, please don't express this kind of opinion in front of my son, um, it seems morally legitimate but unlikely to work out in practice. Like, they don't see their homophobic beliefs as something that they should be ashamed of or that they should try to hide, I'm assuming. Um, and if you say, well, my son can see his older siblings and can come stay with you uh, under these conditions uh, and because I want to protect him from hearing your opinions. Um, it, it seems to me they probably wouldn't react very well to that and they would probably either say, well, then he can't come stay with us or, well, then, you know, yes, we'll do it. But then when he goes over there, you don't really know what they're going to be saying. It just seems as though there's all sorts of ways that they could react badly that would cause more problems than actually um, uh, protecting him from, from what you're trying to protect him from. Um, in terms of the question of talking to him about it and, and preparing him, uh, five years old seems like it's sort of on the borderline of being able to understand things like that. And, and so depending on your sense of his maturity level and what he can understand, um, I think it, it might be a good idea for you to prepare him a little bit and to say, you know, there are some people who have uh, these kind of same-sex relationships. And of course, we know a lot of people like that and some of the people we love are in those kinds of relationships and we know that it doesn't, uh, that there's nothing wrong with that, but other people have a, um, have a different view. And unfortunately, there are people out there who are have prejudice in their hearts against gay people. Um, and explain to him a little bit about what that means. Um, maybe he's not really able to understand that at this point and you have to wait a year or two in which case maybe when he goes and stays with this family then there's some stuff they say that he doesn't understand and maybe it's a little confusing for him for a while and you wind up clarifying it with him later um the good thing about this situation is that he's going to be with you for the rest of his childhood and so you have a little bit of time to explain all of this to him you don't have to make sure that he's fully briefed before he goes over and stays there yeah uh, I totally agree with Gabe. I think this is like a conversation that you have with him in stages um, and as the need arises. And I think that your initial uh, sense that the important thing here is to keep him um, in contact and to have a relationship with his siblings and for you to, you know, foster a sense of uh, family for him inside your family and and out uh, is like the primary focus. And, you know, all of our kids come into contact in different ways with family members or figures of authority or friends who believe things that are wrong and uh, believe things that we disagree with and that are, you know, dangerous and bad. And we all have to navigate those uh, situations. Um, but I think certainly like your instinct to, you know, continue this relationship or to foster this relationship and not pull him out of it is a good one. And I think, you know, the best way to do that and while at the same time feeling good about, you know, doing the right thing um, and making sure that he's he's raised with um, the right understanding of prejudice and and um, 
the different ways that people love each other, um, it can be done between within your immediate family uh, and doesn't need to be addressed, at least at this point, with with the other with the other family. Yeah, good. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a tough one. Uh, it it is. is definitely a tough one because there's like doing the right thing for in one way is not necessarily doing the right thing. Uh, for everyone, and that's life, <laughs> unfortunately, all the time. I hope it goes well, and um, let us know how it goes. I, I, I really want to know. Uh, listeners, if you have questions or um, disagree with our answers, call us and leave us a message at 424-255-7833. Okay, let's move on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Last episode, Dan's triumph, his final triumph, was that he successfully took his older daughter to see Rogue One but did not allow his younger daughter to go. He considered this a triumph because he felt the movie to be too dark and violent for his younger kid. I applauded his triumph and was happy that John and I had decided that neither of our kids would see it because we're such good parents. But then came winter break and older cousins and John preferring to see Rogue One than Moana and we found ourselves in Dan's old position. We let Harry, who is eight, go to Rogue One with John and drag Sam, sobbing, uh, Sam, who is five, to Moana with me and Wally, which is just, like, not cool. So, should I have let Sam see Rogue One? He's seen all the Star Wars movies. And should the Star Wars movies all be kid-safe, or are they actually grown-up movies that we forced into the kid realm? Joining us to answer these and other pressing Rogue One questions, possibly with spoilers, but it's been out for so many weeks, so you guys are going to have to get over it, uh, is Slate's new, new-ish browbeat editor, Sam Adams, father of Francis, who is seven. Hey, Sam. Hello. So, did you allow Francis to see Rogue One? Yes, I did allow Francis to see Rogue One. I, in fact, uh, enthusiastically took her to see it. Um, we are, our sort of brief history with the Star Wars franchise, I guess we, um, I guess at, at my instigation, watched all of the movies in release order um, last year before Force Awakens came out. I'm not someone who generally feels like my daughter has to like all the things that I like and is not someone in a way that feels a really passionate um, emotional attachment to the Star Wars franchise, although it's sort of come back to me in some ways, but it just felt like, you know, this is her, this is her trilogy. And it felt like it would just be kind of a cool thing for her to be up on. So we did all that. She got really into it. She loves, you know, Yoda and Leia and Ray. And, um, and then, you know, we knew there was a new movie coming out this year. It was a bit of an uphill battle explaining the existence of Rogue One to her in the first place because it was, oh, there's a new Star Wars movie coming out. Oh, great, it's Episode Eight. No, it's not Episode Eight. And actually, 
none of the characters you know are in it, but it's still a Star Wars movie. Um, that was kind of a hard conceptual hurdle for a seven-year-old to clear. Um, but she sort of eventually got the picture, and we were going to go see it. And I was definitely happy. I had seen it beforehand. So I knew that, um, as you mentioned, it has a, I guess maybe we'll just say it has a tragic ending. Um, things don't end well for the men and women of Rogue One. And so I knew that going in. And, you know, it's a heavier ending than anything she's seen before. You know, not everything she sees ends with kind of a big, you know, uplifting musical number or whatever. But it's not, you know, she hasn't seen kind of war movie ending like this before. And so it was just the kind of thing where it wasn't to the point where I didn't think it was inappropriate for her or she couldn't handle it because I often, she often kind of surprises me with the stuff that she can handle. But, you know, it, it was, I was watching her at the ending more than I was watching the screen because I'd seen the movie before. And, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't seem to face her. I think the death of Han Solo in the force awakens, which I think we can freely spoil now. Jeez, really? Over a year old. <laughs> Wait, I seriously, um, I, sorry, that, I have no idea. Her, I think more than the ending of rogue one. I mean, she kind of, she verified it with me. She said, okay, did that really happen? I'm like, am I reading this right? Um, but it didn't seem to upset her. Uh, is, she, is it upsetting that that didn't upset her? That's a, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it's, I mean, I think she understood the story as one of sacrifice. And I think the way that they play it in the movie, I mean, the movie goes on for several minutes after, now we'll just give it away because it's too hard to talk around. Um, you know, the movie goes on for several minutes after essentially all the characters that we're following have been killed. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of narratively weird in a way. We've been following these characters through the whole movie and they're dead, but the movie's still going on. And there's this whole Darth Vader fight scene and which is very cool, but it's also like, why is this in the movie? But it is important to one to, you know, take it up to basically the second before the original star Wars movie starts. Um, but also to, you know, bring it back to the living princess Leia and the idea of hope. And I think that that kind of grounds the, sacrifice that these people have made to, you know, steal the Death Star plans and yada, yada, the whole, the whole plot. Um, I think that that gives it meaning. So, and she is, you know, they've talked about, you know, I don't know, the, you know, the civil rights movement and stuff like that at school. So she's, you know, aware that sometimes people have to sacrifice their freedom and even their lives to make the world a better place. Um, but it doesn't seem to be something that's you know, weighed on her mind. I guess I think she, you know I think she understood it, and it just kind of moved on to the next thing, maybe. But so it seems like the fact that you had given her a, a thorough grounding in the the lore and and canon of Star Wars movies was probably really helpful here, because in a way this is not the ending of the movie, right? In a way, the ending is they all die, and then there's the Darth Vader fight scene, and then Episode Four begins, and we know what happens here. And so you're not asking her to accept that everybody dies at the end. You're asking her to accept that some people die in the middle and then all of her other favorites come on and, and do their exciting thing that she already knows about. Yeah, one thing I've, I've been thinking about is, is we, and we've just started in on the Harry Potter series, not the movies, but we're, you know, just started reading the book, um, which a lot of her classmates have already read and have totally spoiled the entire plot for her in advance, um, which, of course, being seven, she doesn't care about. Um, 
but it, it did strike me too that, that, that there's a similarity in the series between the series in that if you watch them, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, we kind of watched the Star Wars movies as they came out, not in, you know, prequels and original trilogy, whatever, um, that they kind of, they sort of scale up in, in maturity in some ways as you go along. So as kids get older, but also kind of get more into the storytelling, I think they're, they're more able to handle some of those things. So, you know, by the time you get to, you know, the end of Revenge of the Sith and, um, you know, Anakin Skywalker's like murdering a bunch of six-year-old Jedi um, in their little nursery, um, you're kind of, you know, ready for that. And that, I think, is darker than anything that happens in Rogue One. Um, it's funny that people forget about that because you think of the prequels and you just think of, like, you know, Jake Lloyd going to go, wee and the little Padre stuff. But, you know, it does. there is this mass murder of children at the end of one of them. So compared to that, the sort of purposeful sacrifice at the end of Rogue One is not really so bad. Um, but I think it, it, you know, the series has kind of laid the groundwork for that in some ways. So there was a great uh, A.O. Scott essay several years ago in the New York Times where he argued for taking kids to see all sorts of movies. I don't even remember. Maybe it included TV, too, but just like not not to just take kids to kids' movies or even just to kid-appropriate movies. And he talked about taking his son to see you know, fairly, what we would think of as fairly adult movies. Where do you guys land on that? Like, where do you draw lines? You know, I don't think we've drawn a hard and fast line. I mean, we're not, you know, I write about movies and have been doing it for 20 years, and, and but I'm have, have not someone who's ever felt like, you know, now I need my daughter to see Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton or whatever. I don't want to kind of get unload a big dump truck of, cultural priorities on her in her front yard. You know, I want her to come to stuff on her own to a certain extent. Um, you know, most of the movies we've seen are, you know, we've seen a lot of cartoons and some musicals, and we haven't seen a lot of kind of live-action straight dramas other than the Star Wars movies. So, And that's not because we think they're inappropriate, I guess. It's just maybe don't watch that many movies with her in, in the first place, and those don't seem like the important ones to... To see, I mean, I, I think we're going to watch um, Hidden Figures with her at some point, just because that's, you know, a movie about, you know, an inspiring movie about, uh, you know, women and um, taking, you know, taking charge in the area of sort of, you know, science and, and math, which are things that she's really interested in. And that will be, that's going to be interesting to watch with her just because it's a different kind of movie. It's basically, it's got some humor, but it's more or less a drama, it's kind of historical fiction, and I don't, I don't think we've watched anything quite like that before, but it's not for the appropriateness question, is more one of, you know, is this something that she's going to like or be into than the idea of, you know, whether or not it's kind of too adult for her, I guess. Okay, so bottom line, my daughter Eliza, she's six years old, uh, all she knows about Star Wars is what she's heard from kids at school, which is basically like there's guys who fight each other with laser swords. Um, and she's seen her friends in her class pretend to fight each other with the laser swords. And that's about it. If she says to me, hey, there's a Star Wars movie and everybody's into the Star Wars movie. Can we go see the Star Wars movie? Will you go take me to see this Star Wars? Movie? She would not know that it's called Rogue One. Will you take me to go see the Star Wars movie? Um, should I go take her to it? Well, I, I, first, I do have to connect your correct your pronunciation there because um, Francis likes to remind us that the movie is called Rouge One, um, <laughs> even though you've seen it. So, just I want to make sure that that's clear. Um, I, I, you know, I think I think it's okay. I mean, I guess it's 
you know, if you if you've read her, I don't know, you know, Grimm's fairy tales or kind of other stuff where there's, you know, a certain amount of, of death in them and stuff, and, and she's kind of, you know, familiar with that as an idea. I don't think Rogue One is is particularly out there as far as that goes. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think it's you know an incredible movie that everyone must see, but I also think it's. You know, for me, a lot of the decisions are just kind of you. In a way, you find out if things work by taking your kid to them and seeing how they react, and they will, to a certain extent, kind of let you know what they can handle and, and what they can. And you obviously don't want to, you know, go up too many steps at at a time. But I, I don't think it's something where, you know, you're going to end up with a kid that's traumatized for life because of the end of Rogue One. Okay, my last question. You ha- yeah. Your answer is, this is a yes or no question. You may not elaborate. Until, okay. Okay. Are Star Wars movies kids' movies? Yes. Hmm. He didn't elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> now I kind of want him to elaborate. <laughs> Me too. Go I ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Elaborate quickly, and then we'll go. Uh, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that they are kids' movies. I mean, I think that they are also adults' movies, but they are... You know, they are all ages. They come out of this tradition of kind of Flash Gordon serials from the 30s and stuff. They're basically sexless, um, except for maybe the love story in, in the prequels. Um, the, you know, violence is, is bloodless. You know, I, you know they're not, um, I guess they're not Saturday morning cartoons or something, but they, they don't, you know, seem to me that, you know, they, they're, they are fun. They have kind of uplifting music they have you know catchy lines and little green puppets who teach people how to do magical things and uh you know and they're they're like a huge part of the culture too so i I think there are they're a good thing to grow up on and there are worse things that you can show your kids okay thank you sam adams for joining us listeners Go to our Facebook page. Tell us if I should have let Sam see Rogue One. I guess there's still time. Rouge One, sorry. Uh, And tell us if your kids have been traumatized. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to recommendations, Gabe. So this is also from our recent family vacation uh, to the British Isles. Um, My recommendation is if you have young children and can somehow get them to London, take them on the top of a double-decker bus. Um, it's really cool. You, you, uh, some of you I'm sure have been on the top of a double decker bus, but my mother got us all tickets to go on the London eye, which is like the giant Ferris wheel on the Thames. And it was cool, but it was super crowded and they can't really see over all of the people who are snapping photographs of one another on the London eye. And really for them, they're just like in a little box. And I don't know how much my mother paid for the tickets, but like it was some money. Yeah. Um, and then the next day, um, we took them on a double-decker bus, and we paid like one pound for the tickets, for our tickets. We didn't have to pay anything for their tickets. And there's stairs inside the bus. And then you go up the stairs, and then there's more seats at the top of the stairs. And if you get on like near the beginning of the route, then you can sit at the very front of the bus. And there's huge windows, and you, the bus goes right into the middle of town, and you can see all the people and all the stores and everybody. It's like... It's a great panorama. And here, of course, in New York City, where we live, there there are double-decker buses, but they all are all tourist buses, and they have some jerk yelling at you over a microphone. I was going to ask you if you were And they probably cost that. like $15, and yeah. I have no desire to do that. Yeah. This is just like you're just on a regular bit of public transportation that sort of doubles as a magical experience for two children who've never been on a double-decker bus before. 
That is also just like the way everything goes, right? Like whatever like big experience you plan and pay a lot of money for is never as cool as the like just the bus thing. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no. And then, I mean, on that um, Odyssey return home voyage that I was talking about, there was a bit where we were in the airport um, and we had like an hour to kill at a place where there was an escalator going down and right next to it, an escalator going up and literally best part of the vacation. <laughs> That hour, because he, he, he learned to go on it by himself. At one point, I was just standing there watching him go down, and he's still talking about that. You watched me on the elevator. <laughs> you could have been like in a mall in anywheresville. Yes, yeah. we could. Yeah. Okay, that's a great recommendation. Uh, mine is also based on something I found during uh, winter break. Uh, Dan had recommended many months ago, I feel like, this podcast called The Unexplainable The Unexplainable Disappearance of Mars Patel, which is a – did you have you listened to this podcast? No, I haven't. It's a serial mystery podcast for kids or for families. Um, it's really great. It's like a radio play, basically. Um, it has, I think, 10 episodes. It's very, very well done. Anyway, we finally listened to it in our drive to Virginia. We had like a seven-hour drive. My kids – Loved it. All three of them, all three ages. I even, like, Wally kind of got it, but Harry, like, you know, got it at a different level. Very suspenseful. John enjoyed it, and he, like, never lets us turn off his music in the car, but he was cool with this. I make him sound like such a tyrant when I'm recording this show. He allowed us to. to. Anyway, it was great, and when it was finished, we had more driving to do, or we had the drive back to do, and the kids are like, okay, where's, you know, what's the next thing? There's going to be a season two of this, but it's not out yet. Uh, so then I posted on Facebook as- asking people for recommendations. I went and looked at an old thread uh, on the Mom and Dad are Fighting Facebook page. This is not just a plug for our Facebook page, but about, like, podcasts for everybody. You guys all wrote in recommending podcasts for kids of various ages. We tried a few of them, like this one called Brains On, I think it's called, about, like, it's science and stuff, and my kids really didn't like it. They Sounds thought it was educational. Boring. Yes, it was too educational. Anyway, I finally found another serial podcast for kids, uh, like a serialized science fiction story for kids called The Alien Adventures of Finn Caspian. Um, it's it's different than Mars Patel because Mars Patel has different actors playing all the parts. This is just sort of told, written, and performed by this one guy. His name is Jonathan Messenger. This is like a... This is a half-hearted, three-fourths hearted endorsement. I didn't love it as much as Mars Patel, but it, you know, it's Scratches sufficient. The yes, exactly. So the Alien Adventures of Finn Caspian, there are like, I think, 13 episodes so far. We haven't gotten through all of them, so I don't know if that's the end or if there's going to be more. They're told in about, like, each episode is about 15, 20 minutes, and it's fun. Listen to Mars Patel first, though. Um, or maybe actually don't, because then you'll be disappointed. That's my recommendation. <laughs> the show you'll be disappointed in. Uh, I'll be sure to check it out. Okay, that's our show. Remember to please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash fighting, and email us at slate.com. Also call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks to our producer, Zach Dinerstein, executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Liktai, and Panoply Honcho, Andy Bowers. Also, thanks to our guests, Dr. Sunia Luther and Sam Adams. Thanks, Gabe, for co-hosting. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year, everyone, and thank you for listening. It's the Death Star. Something so incredible. Death Star. Something indestructible. Death.
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.